Hey everybody, it's Matt. Welcome or welcome back to the Journey Church Podcast. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can automatically get our weekly episodes. And you might want to go ahead and subscribe to our Journey YouTube channel as well. You'll find messages, music, interviews, inspiring stories, and more for you all right there. Now, I hope this episode helps you take your next step in following Jesus. Whether you are a Christian or not, consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not, uh, one of the things I think is true of us is we have a lot in common, and particularly uh, when it comes to what we're talking about during this series, we have a couple of things in common. One of the things that's common for all of us is we all know what it's like to go through seasons where it feels like the hits just keep on coming. We all know what it's like to find ourselves in places in life where it's one problem after another problem after another problem, and we don't know when it's going to end. And the other thing we all have in common is we all want to come through those seasons better on the other side. None of us go, you know what, this is such a tough time in my life. I hope when I get to the other side, I'm so bitter that I'm never the same person again. I mean, that's none of our goal, right? So we all want to come out better, not bitter. But I'll tell you where we differ, and this is not the line of you know, follower of Jesus or not a follower of Jesus. This is kind of back and forth between all of us. But where we differ is we do all see these seasons of life. We do all see our struggles a little bit differently. And, I, and I'm going to overgeneralize here, okay? But I think we can group all of us into one of two camps, if you want to think of it um, in this regard. Some of us look at all of these struggles that we go through through what you might call a lens of hope, but not like real hope, more like false hope. And what I mean by that is just this. You are the people that whenever you're in difficult situations, you don't want to think about or talk about your problems. You know who you are. You're the people who, you know, heads in the sand, you're going to turn a blind eye to everything. You want to deny reality. It's like, what problems? I don't have any problems. Well, this has got to be hard on you. No, no, no. Everything's fine. You know, that's, that's how you know you're one of these people. When they ask, how, oh, everything's fine. It's all good. It's all good. Really? You shouldn't be good. No, no, no. It's all good. You know, you're one of those people. And then if you're a Christian, it's even worse because you throw out cliches. It's like, oh, well, God works all things together for good. And I'm just telling you, when people tell me that and things are tough in my life, I want to smack them. So you might just not use that verse of people, okay? But this is, this is what we all do. It's like, oh, or some of us do. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, I, everything's fine. I don't want to deal with it. Well, aren't you in a lot of financial trouble? Yeah, well, let's look and see how much credit card debt. Oh, no, no, no. I don't want to know how much credit card debt I have. Well, in your relationship struggling, we should sit down and have a hard conversation. No, no, no. I don't want to have a hard conversation. You know who you are, okay? You're the people. It's just everything's hope, everything's optimism, but it's empty optimism. And, and I'm not trying to, you know, be hard on you, but it's empty optimism because it's not actually connected to any truth or any reality. So this is some of you, okay? You know who you are and you're getting the elbows right now. Uh, but the other side of it is this. Some of us are the exact opposite. We're the people who look at everything through the lens of reality. But it's not actual reality. It's our perception of reality. And all I mean by that is this. When we're going through seasons of difficulty, all we see is the bad in life. You know what I'm talking about. It's like, no, everything's terrible. And you can't see anything good. You know, somebody tries to help you, it's not enough help. Somebody tries to support you, they didn't support me enough. Somebody tries to show care to you, well, they didn't care enough. You know, they didn't show up enough. It's just you assume the worst about everything, and it skews your perspective on life to the point that everything is awful all the time. And what happens at times is you have a victim mentality. 
At other times, it's just, no, 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 the world's terrible and my life's terrible and it's always going to be terrible and I'm just used to it being terrible, you know? You can, you'll miss every good thing in your life because you're so obsessed about what's wrong. All of us have a tendency, I think, to fall into one of these two categories. I'm going to try to see everything through this lens of empty optimism, this false hope, or I'm going to see everything through this lens of pessimism, you know? Negativity is just so, so awful. The problem is... You pick either one of these lenses and you look at what's going on in your life and you will get a distorted picture of the reality of your life. What you, I don't care which lens. You pick either one. Let me tell you what will happen. You will not be able to spot God at work in your life. You will not be able to see any good in your life. And what's going to end up happening if you choose either one of these lenses is you will come out on the other side discouraged, in some cases disillusioned, defeated, you'll come out on the other side bitter and not better. And I know that because I've watched it happen to people over and over and over again. Now, fortunately, there is a third way to look at all of the struggles, all of the challenges, all the problems, all the stuff that we go through in life. And I think it's a much healthier way. It's a way that if you will learn how to do this, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me tell you what will happen. For all of us, what will happen is you will actually begin to understand and know God in a more personal way. Your character will be stronger and your relationships will get deeper. So what I want to do today for the next couple minutes is I want to talk about this third way. And the best way I know to introduce it is to introduce you, and for some of you, you may be familiar with this, but to introduce you to a couple who lived 4,000 years ago. Their names, you may have heard of them, their names are Abraham and Sarah, and they lived in this little Middle Eastern town called Haran. They'd spent their entire lives there. Now, this is important to the story, and some of you can relate to this because some of you have spent your entire life in Calway County or Marshall County or Henry or Graves or McCracken, you know, wherever you've grown up, wherever your hometown is. Some of you get this. You spent your whole life in one place, so you're going to be able to relate to the challenge Abraham and Sarah have. Um, I can't entirely relate because I've spent the majority of my life in Murray, but I didn't move here until I was a freshman in high school, which means when people ask me where I'm from and I say Murray, if it's one of you Callaway County lifers, you go liar. That's what you say. Y'all know how this works right around here. Maybe my grandkids will be from Callaway County. I don't know. So anyway, you know what it's like when you're a lifer. So, so anyway, this was Abraham and Sarah, okay? Abraham's about 75 years old. Um, they have been lifers in this little Middle Eastern town called Haran. And to, their, to our knowledge, they have never before in any way had an experience or any understanding of who God is. And the reason I say that is because Abraham and Sarah lived before any of the documents were written that became part of our Old Testament, what we call the Jewish scriptures. So they had no way of knowing anything about God until, as I said, when Abraham's about 75 years old, in some way, God shows up and has a conversation with Abraham and Sarah. In a way, he introduces himself to them, and he asks them to do something that's a bit ridiculous. He says, I want you to pack up everything you have, all your servants, you know, the whole life you built here in Haran. I want you to pack it all up, and I'm asking you, yeah, I'm a new God, you don't know me, but I'm asking you to trust me enough that you will move to a land I want you to live in. And oh, by the way, I'm not going to tell you where that is until you get there. So just pack up and take off. All of us planners would have been thrilled by that, wouldn't we? It's like, are you kidding me? So there's a little bit of pushback, I'm assuming, from Abraham and Sarah because God has to sweeten the deal a little bit. So he says to them, all right, 
If you will do this, if you will trust me in this way, he says, I'm going to make you three promises. And here's what they were. The first promise was this. He said, Abraham, your name will be great. Well, we all know that uh, it's true that that promise was fulfilled because my guess is whether it's your first time in church or not, in some way you've heard of Abraham. So absolutely it happened. But here's what I want to point out. While we know this promise was fulfilled, Abraham never knew it got fulfilled because when Abraham died, his name wasn't known around the world at that time. So this is one of those promises Abraham just had to believe in and then wait and wait and wait and assume that it would eventually come true. The second promise was this. God said, Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to all people. We know that eventually happens because um, from Abraham comes the nation of Israel. From his family comes the nation of Israel. Uh, through whom God reveals himself to the world, through whom Jesus eventually shows up. So yes, in a way, you know, the entire world got blessed because we all realized there was a way to have a relationship with God and it all was because, and it all came out of Abraham's family. So again, promise kept, but not kept in Abraham's lifetime, right? This happened way on down the road. And then the third promise was this one. He said, Abraham, your family will become a great nation. Again, we know this happened because they became the nation of Israel. Abraham had Isaac, who had Jacob, who had 12 sons, who became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. However, when God mentions this promise, this is where it hit on a very, very sensitive topic. This is where Abraham and Sarah paused because God poked around right in an area of struggle for them. He poked around right in a season where the hits just kept on coming for them. Because Abraham's 75, Sarah's not much younger. And while people lived a little longer then and the window wasn't completely closed, when God said your family's going to be great, Abraham and Sarah had no family except themselves. They had no child. Now, if you've been through infertility, and I know some of you have battled that, you know how taxing and toiling and emotionally painful that is. And it was all of that for Abraham and Sarah, plus some because of the weight and the, the consequence of not having kids in their culture, the size of your family mattered deeply in terms of where you landed in their culture. So there's this promise of, oh, you're going to be a great family, you're going to have a great nation, and they're looking at this God that we assume they've just met, and they're thinking, we don't even have a son. How in the world could that happen? So I'm going to give you the short version of the story, okay? Some of you may be familiar with this. They decide to take God up. They don't have a lot of trust, but they've got a little. They decide to take God up on his offer. And they leave Haran, and they eventually land at a place where God says, this is going to be your new home, and it becomes what we now know as the nation of Israel. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait. They actually wait 25 years, and there is still no son, which means there's still no family, which means there'll still be no, oh, I'm going to be a blessing to, you know, all the nations, and my name's going to be great. Like, 25 years. They assumed, I'm sure, like all of us assume, I'm sure, well, God gave me a promise it's going to happen quick. No, no, no. 25 years of ups and downs and struggle and, you know, everything. And to, not to spoil the story, but after 25 years, miraculously, they do have a son. They have Isaac. Sarah gets pregnant. All of this comes true. All of this happens. But it's that 25 years that I want us to talk about today. So fast forward about 2,000 years from Abraham and Sarah, and there are a group of Jesus followers living in the city of Rome, and we can't totally understand the significance of that, but I'm telling you, it was so odd because 
you know, as we've talked about before, the Roman Empire, you know, they hated these Christians for some specific reasons. And now you have all of these Jesus followers in the city of Rome in the shadow of the emperor, and they are dealing with intense persecution. You talk about seasons where it was one hit after another. They are experiencing it. And the Apostle Paul, maybe you've heard of Paul. Paul is dying to get to Rome to encourage them, and he can't get there. And so he writes them a letter. And in this letter, he's trying to help them understand how to navigate through the season of difficulty they're in, where they don't use this lens of false hope and they don't use this lens of false reality. He's trying to help them understand this third way. And the way he teaches them is he references back to the story they were familiar with of Abraham and Sarah. And I want to show you just briefly what he writes because he gives them a path forward. And I think he gives all of us, whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, he gives all of us a path forward on a healthier, better way to go through these seasons where we come out better and not bitter. So here's what Paul wrote. He starts with this. He says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, which I want to pause here because is that not the most foolish statement you've ever seen? It's like, we knew there was no hope whatsoever. And yet in spite of that, we kept having hope and we kept believing. That, that doesn't make any sense, except, and this is why Paul talked about this, except Paul is helping them and helping us understand that Abraham did exactly what we talked about last week. This word believed is not an intellectual idea. It's a very practical one. What Paul's saying is against all hope, as Abraham and Sarah navigated these 25 years, they chose to practically trust in and act as if they were confident God was going to do what he said he was going to do. Now, it is foolish against all hope to still hope. Unless you put your hope and you put your trust in an object that is bigger than the circumstances that are making your life hopeless. To illustrate it as I did last week, it doesn't matter the size of faith I have nearly as much as it matters the object in which I put my trust or my faith. You guys see this stool right here. It's a lovely stool. It works really well, right? So this stool... I could have all the trust in the world that this thing's going to hold me up. I could stand on it. I could jump on it. It does not matter how confident I am in the sturdiness of this stool. What's going to happen? I'm going to fall. On the other hand, I can have next to no confidence in this stool and assume there's no way it could hold me, but muster up just enough trust to try it and sit down on it. And when I put my weight on this stool, what happens? It holds me. Why? Not because of the size of my trust, but because of the sturdiness of the stool. Now, this is what Paul's talking about when he talks about against all hope, Abraham in hope still believed. He's saying, okay, he was looking at all of his circumstances going, it is impossible for any of these promises to come true that God has given me. But in spite of that, I'm going to take just the little bit of trust I've got in this God I have met. And I'm still going to act and do what someone would do if they believed God was going to follow through on his promise. I'm going to take my little bit of trust and I'm still going to put it in this God and I'm going to see what happens. And it was not the size of Abraham's trust that made the difference. It was where he decided to put his trust. Paul writes, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And here's what happened. 
And so he became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. Paul says, just as God had promised, so shall your offspring be. Now, that's 25 years that Paul summarized in one sentence. And to be honest, that doesn't help us a lot, does it? It's like, okay, well, great, but how? How in the world did Abraham and Sarah, 25 years of disappointment and disillusionment and you know, doubt, how in the world did they keep hoping in spite of all that? Well, Paul goes on to unpack this for us. Here's the secret. First, he says this, without weakening in his faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb, because he wasn't about to mention Sarah's age. He was smarter than that. Sarah's womb was also dead. <clears throat> so he says, all right, the first thing Abraham and Sarah did is they did not deny their reality. They didn't say, oh, it's fine. Oh, I'm sure it's going to work out. Oh, there's some ways, you know, we'll go see some doctors. and we'll No. They acknowledged the impossible. They acknowledged there's no way, biologically speaking, we're ever going to have a child, which means none of these promises are ever going to come true. They were honest about their current reality. They just confronted the brutal facts of the situation, which makes all of you realists feel good, doesn't it? It's like, see, I knew it. You got to be honest about us. Things are terrible. You know, you got to be. But they don't stop there. Paul says, yeah, they, they face the fact. And then they did this. He says, yet Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. In other words, he kept trusting. Now, I want to clarify something real quick here. Because when Paul says that Abraham did not waver, that Sarah did not waver, he is not saying it in the sense of, oh my gosh, they just put their trust in God. And boy, things were terrible and they just always trusted and it was, they were so perfect. No, no, no. You can read this for yourself, okay? But you should go to Genesis sometime and find Abraham and Sarah's story and read what all they did in these 25 years. Let me illustrate it simply. They would put their trust in God for a minute and then they would lose so much hope and get so discouraged that they would stop trusting God and they would come over and they would put their trust in something they thought they could do on their own to make the promises come true. For example, one time they're in Egypt and the king of Egypt sees Abraham's wife, and Abraham's like, uh-oh, she's beautiful. He's going to want her to be his wife and not my wife. He will kill me if he finds out. And so guess what Abraham does? He's like, oh, he must have had so much faith in God. Yeah, yeah, he did. He looked at the king, and he said, hey, um, this is my sister. You're welcome to have her. Gentlemen, I would not suggest you go that route ever. It's better to die than have to deal with that, right? It's like, can you imagine what Sarah's thinking? Are you kidding me? But again, it made a mess, as you could imagine. But they had they just lost hope. They started putting their trust in their own plans, in their own ideas. And it created all kinds of consequences. But then, when things got bad, they realized, we screwed up. So they went and put their trust back in God. And that worked good for a little while until, again, they still don't have a child. And then Sarah, I cannot imagine Jen having this conversation with me. Sarah gets so desperate that she looks at Abraham and says, I'm never going to be able to give you a kid. Why don't you go sleep with my servant, get her pregnant. We'll have a son through her. Gentlemen, I don't care if your wives do offer that. The answer is no, okay? You don't want to deal with the consequences of that. And you can imagine, they did it, right? They did it. And it just tore everything up. And there are still consequences today because of that. We won't get into that today. But my point is, they were not perfect with this. They bounce back and forth, back and forth. So why would Paul say, oh, but they didn't waver in their unbelief? Well, here's why he says it. 
Because every time, and this maybe is going to be encouraging for some of you, every time they messed up, every time they lost hope, every time they created a mess with their lives, instead of giving up, they wouldn't let go of the rope. They would come back over and say, okay, we messed up. God, we're going to put our trust in you again. Not a lot of trust. They didn't have a lot. They had just a little. But they just kept coming back over and over and going, I want to try it again, God. I'm going to trust you're going to keep your promise. They didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. And Paul goes on to tell us that because of that, they were strengthened in his faith. That it honored God. It gave glory to God. Because they were fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. Okay, so here's how they got through it. Here's how you go 25 years and you see no answer to prayer and, you know, things are just worse and worse and worse and you're wondering, are we ever going to get through this? Is God ever going to help, you know? Here's, here's how you get, do it. you get through it. You do two things at the same time. Two things that seem to make no sense to put together. You confront the brutal facts and you keep believing. You are honest about your reality. And at the same time, you're still hopeful about the possibility. I'm going to confront the brutal facts of my situation. And I'm not going to stop believing, not intellectually. I'm not going to stop trusting. And every time I fail to trust and I screw something up and I make a mess, I'm going to come back and I'm just going to try to trust again. Not because... You have answers, not because I have answers. The brutal facts say there's no way out of your situation or I'm not smart enough to solve this problem. No, no, I confront the brutal facts, but I keep believing because I am trusting in a God who is bigger than any hopeless situation I have. And he may not get me out of it, but he will be with me through it. He may not fix all my problems, but he can if he wants to. Now, this is a point where if you're not a Christian and not a church person, this is helpful for you, but this is where you may want to, you know, get off the bus for a minute. Because here's my struggle as I'm talking to you about this. I actually don't know if you're not a Christian how you do these two things simultaneously and how you hold on to both of them on your own. I know I can't do it on my own. Paul knew we couldn't do it on our own. Paul knew the only way you can confront the brutal facts and keep believing is if you anchor both of these to someone bigger than yourself, to something bigger than yourself. So here's what he tells us next. He says, this decision on the part of Abraham is why it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Righteousness just means to have a right standing with God. So remember, before God shows up and talks to them, they have no relationship with God. And Abraham and Sarah are far from perfect. It's a roller coaster up and down. But because they kept coming back and putting their little bit of trust in God, God says, that's all I need. Everything's good between us. We've got a relationship forever. Why would God do that? But because trust is the foundation of any healthy relationship, right? So all it took, this is what amazed me, all it took was a little bit of, let's be honest, shaky, roller coaster, up and down trust in God. For God to say, good enough for me, Abraham. Good enough for me, Sarah. You're my children. And then Paul gives us some great news. He writes, the words that was credited to him 
were not written for Abraham alone, but also for us, for you, for me, to whom God will credit righteousness, which means it doesn't matter what kind of mess we made with our life and how many times we've trusted in ourselves and how many times we've walked away from God. It is possible for you and for me to have a right standing with God, a relationship with him that will last forever. Well, Paul, how do you get that? He says, oh, here's the best news. Here's all you have to do. It's for us who believe in or trust in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. In other words, Paul says, the only way that I know that you can confront the brutal facts and you can keep believing at the same time is if you anchor your trust, your hope, against all odds to the resurrection of Jesus. Why would he say that? Well, because you can now trust everything Jesus said because he rose from the dead. You realize, if it's true, and if you don't believe in the resurrection, I get that. There's a lot of evidence, and that's a great conversation for another day. But if you come to the point that you believe Jesus actually came back to life, that validates everything he said. You can trust everything including when he looked at us, his followers, and he said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Confront the brutal facts. But take heart. I've overcome the world. You can keep believing because I'm bigger than any problem you face. He said, you're going to find yourself at points in life where things are so difficult that you're going to wonder where I am. But I promise I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be for you. And I'm going to love you. Never, never measure my love for you based on your circumstances. Jesus says, no, I proved it to you. Just know, no matter what you're going through. And then, which is incredible news, Jesus said, you're going to go through all these seasons in life where the hits just keep on coming. And I'm not going to deliver you out of them. But I will walk with you through them. And then, good news. One day, Jesus said, I'm going to show up and I'm going to take this broken world that's creating so much pain for you and I'm going to restore everything to the way I originally created and intended for it to be. And there'll be no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more tears, no more doubt, no more discouragement, no more fear. Then you won't have to worry about these seasons anymore. So my question for you, if you're in the middle of one of these seasons, it may be in a single relationship or a particular area of life, or it may feel like your entire life is coming unraveled right now. My question for you is, would you just be willing to do what Abraham and Sarah did? You're not going to be perfect. It's going to be a ton of ups and downs. But would you confront the brutal facts and at the same time keep believing? Be honest about the reality of your situation and be hopeful about the possibility. Which means, for some of you, you're going to have to have that hard conversation with that person that you just feel like the relationship is dead. You're honest about where the relationship is, but you're going to stay hopeful and try one more time to start down a road of reconciliation. Or you're going to go to counseling, even though it feels like there's no point in counseling anymore or you're gonna move out and create some boundaries but still hope at the same time that you can work your way back together for some of you it means you're actually gonna find out how much debt you're in you're gonna confront the brutal facts 
And, and this makes no sense, at the same time, you know what it looks like to keep believing? It looks like, okay, Jesus, here's my situation. It looks like I'll never dig out. And then I look at what you say, and you say I should live on a spending plan. Like I should, this makes no sense. You say I should give first even when I'm in a hole, and then I should work to dig my way out of a hole. That makes no sense. But Jesus, I'm going to confront the brutal facts, and I'm still going to trust you and do what you're asking me to do. I'm going to see if your way works because mine clearly has not. It may mean you're in the middle of getting honest about an addiction you have. And other people are telling you, but you don't want to be honest about it. You don't want to admit it's a problem. And you're going to finally acknowledge it's a problem. And at the same time, you're not going to give up. You're going to do the next right thing that God would want you to do to try to walk out of that dark season. Listen, in just a minute, the band's going to come. We're going to end with a song called Deliverer. And let me tell you why I love this song. This is not one of those songs you hear in churches sometimes. It's like, oh, God does miracles, and he's going to do a miracle for you. If you've been around here very long, you know that. I don't, that's not me. Because God may not do a miracle for you. God hadn't promised to do a miracle for any of us. Why I love this song is it reminds us that God promises to deliver us through what we're going through, not out of it. And that we don't have to know the destination to trust him enough to follow. That we don't have to have all the answers to do the next right thing. And he doesn't have to fix all of our problems for us to know if I keep putting my trust in my own stuff, I'm just going to keep creating a mess. I'm going to end up in a hopeless situation. But if I can take just the little bit of trust I have left and put it in him, he will be with me. He will be for me. He might deliver me out of it, but he will definitely walk with me through it. This is what it looks like to confront the brutal facts and to keep believing. And as we pray, I want to invite you to take this moment as we pray and this next song and use it as your prayer. If you're at a point where you're ready to take what little sliver of trust you have and put it in Jesus. Just use this as a way to express that to him. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Father, for those of us who maybe because of personality or temperament or just so many bad experiences in the past, we've been denying reality. We've been looking at everything through this lens of, oh, it's all good. It's all fine. You know, turning a blind eye. It takes so much courage to confront the brutal facts, to be honest about where we are because of our choices, because of the choices of other people, just because life is difficult. My prayer is that you would give those people the courage to be honest about the reality. And for those of us who, man, we just tend to skew so far negative and we just assume the worst about everything and we can't see the good in anything, for those of us who we've lost hope, if we were honest, we, it feels like everything is hopeless right now. Would you give us the courage to muster up just a tiny bit of trust and to put it in you and to let hope come alive in us again? Not because our situation isn't hopeless, but because you are bigger than our hopeless situation. Thank you, Jesus, for promising 
to walk with us, to deliver us through whatever we face. That's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, if you'd like more content like this, subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our Journey app to access all of our recent message content. And our app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. For more information on our church or to find our app or our YouTube channel, just visit journeycalway.com. That's journeycalway.com. Thanks for listening.